You got your Bibles? All right? Got your Bibles with you? And your notepad and your devices and everything else. We're going to start our, our second um, lesson in the series, What Does Jesus Want Us to Know About the End Times? Um, also calling it Preparation of the Saints. I think that's really what this is all about, is us being prepared for His coming. And tonight, I want to talk to you about what I thought was going to be three, four signs of His return. Signs of His return that it's probable, possible that these are not, although you've heard of these things, you have probably not attributed them maybe to the coming of the Lord. We always attribute certain things like, you know, what, earthquakes and uh, wars and rumors of wars and pestilence and the sky, you know, and uh, what, the moon turning blood red and the stars falling from the sky and all that stuff. But these are some uh, four others that are absolutely signs of the Lord's return that uh, I want to share with you tonight. Last week we got done uh, right at 8 o'clock. I mean, uh, I can't guarantee you that every week. 99.9% uh, .9 of the people were happy to get out so early. At least one person said, too quick. So <laughs> uh, I guess the majority rules to a degree. So anyway, prophetic truth is, is vitally important. If, it was un if prophetic truth was unimportant, then it would beg the question that we'd have to ask, then why is prophecy included in the Word of God so much? The fact that it is included. As much as one-third of the Bible is prophetic, at least at the time that it was written. That's pretty significant if you think about it. And much of that uh, was literally fulfilled when Christ came to earth the first time. And the rest of it will be literally fulfilled when he comes back the second time. Second uh, Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 says, Study to show yourself approved a faithful workman rightly dividing the word of truth. Not any reason to be ashamed to rightly divide the word of truth. Word of truth. So that's... This is midweek service, midweek Bible study. Yeah, is it, is it somewhat like a lecture? I'm sorry it needs to be that way. Someone asked me last week, said, I, I wish it was a little bit more interactive. I'd love to ask some questions. And as much as I agreed with that person in my head, I'm thinking if I let everybody ask questions, we'd never get through a single lesson any given night. And we'd be doing this until the Lord returns. So <laughs> with that in mind, I will encourage you to write questions down because you never know which Wednesday night I may say, let's, let's have some question and answer time. Maybe you have some questions up to this point that you'd love for me to address. And so I encourage you to, uh, to write some questions down. And I, uh, yeah, I guess uh, in a way, I'm sorry, you just have to listen to me for the hour. Um, but again, we wouldn't get through much if we turned this into a dialogue. The study of God's Word, in particular the study of end times, is, um, is hard work. It's not for the lazy. It's not for the faint-hearted. It's not for the feeble-minded. It's definitely not for the closed-minded. It's not for the stubborn. Uh, and it's not for the proud. You know, the proud go, yeah, I already know all those answers. No, no. You know, you know what I always say, it's what you learn after you think you know everything that really makes a difference, that really counts. And the study of end times has to be pursued with, uh, with love. It has to be pursued with enthusiasm, and it has to be pursued with thanksgiving. We don't pursue the uh, study of end times to validate our position. Uh, we don't, you know, it's, it's to learn more about the Father. Right? Every bit of this is all about Jesus. It's growing closer to Jesus. It's developing a more intimate, more profound relationship with Jesus Christ. Because if you'll do that, you'll be completely ready for the end times. Amen? So a lot of people like to get caught up in the different aspects of end times, and many times battle lines are drawn in the ground, dividing lines are drawn in the ground on certain subjects of end times, and that becomes the fighting point where denominations are created. 
And I think that we're going to be talking about all those subjects. I'm not going to skirt any of the end times issues. But in the same token, it's about us finding a unity in the love of Christ and loving him more than us standing on our little soapbox and say, well, this is what I think, and I don't care what you think. And if you don't think like me, you're going to hell. I'm sorry, Hale is a, is a town up north in Michigan. You're actually going further south than that. But anyway, um, I, I, I believe I'm a faithful preacher. I don't, I don't water down the Word of God, and I'm, and I'm faithful to the Word of God. And I, I, I will hope if there's an epitaph of my life, it might be, the things that he taught in the very beginning of his ministry were the same things that he was teaching all the way to the end of his ministry. Uh, I don't tend to get caught off into tangents and make them my Tower of Babel or my hobby horse. Um, and so as a faithful preacher then, I am um, called upon to proclaim the whole counsel of the Word of God, not just specific avenues that are of high interest. And that includes, of course, the whole council includes the prophetic scriptures. So it's important that we dive into those things. Controversy should never be deliberately solicited. Controversy, you don't teach a specific subject or talk about a specific subject in the hopes of inviting some kind of controversy to the table. No. Uh, however, on the other, same token, it should never be avoided. It should never be feared. Uh, if it comes as a result of a faithful presentation of the Word of God, then I will preach the Word and let the Word do the work. Amen? So my job as a pastor is to teach you the whole counsel of the Word. It is, to, it is not necessarily to infuse or to, I should say, impose upon you my personal conviction. I have the opportunity to share my personal belief points. What you have to do with those is go study those in the Word of God for yourself to make sure that they bear witness with your spirit and then work out your salvation with fear and trembling just like I'm working out my salvation with fear and trembling. Amen? And there's always going to be differences of opinion as it relates to end times, whether you're a, a pre-tribulation rapture person or a post-tribulation tribulation rapture person or a non-rapture person or whatever your viewpoints may be. And those, they, they always end up becoming dividing lines, issues that divide us. And I can tell you right now, the Lord never intended for any of the prophetic scriptures to become lines in the sand, red lines in the sand that say, you're no longer my friend if you don't agree with what I have to say, can I get an amen? So we are commanded, though, to grow in grace. I think it's 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What does that say? That says to me that as long as I'm in this earth suit with a heart that's beating and lungs that are breathing, that there will still be more for me to discover about grace and to discover about the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? So don't any one of you think you have arrived, because none of us have arrived. In fact, we'll only see in part and know in part until that which is perfect has come. So everyone needs to be very careful about climbing up on their soapbox and saying, I have the, I have the market cornered on this particular viewpoint. Danger, danger, danger. Growing in knowledge of necessity includes learning new things. You don't grow in knowledge just because you've been reminded of things you already know. You grow in knowledge because you are now discovering something new. You're learning a new truth. Growing in knowledge is also about examining old truth. And this is one of the challenges that I give uh, when I do Torah time and when I do discipleship training is to try to get people to be willing to let their old beliefs be challenged. And then not only do we want to learn new truth and examine old truth, but we got to be able to correct what was incorrect truth once we find out that it wasn't right after all. Some people are so stuck in the mud and stuck in their ways, they're not open to any new truth. And that's a terrible place to be because when you 
when you stop learning, when you stop examining scriptures for, for, for new revelation, when, you stop, when we stop correcting our doctrine because we are human vessels who mess it up a lot, when, then we stop growing. And when we stop growing, we start dying. And so I really want you to, when I pray about having open ears and an open mind to understand, it's also about being willing to investigate the possibilities of something being different than you always thought. And that's okay, all right? We're not going to set, you know, we, we're not going to separate in fellowship under any circumstances, regardless of how egregious the sin may be, and certainly not on doctrinal issues. We're going to stay unified together, amen? There's going to be varieties of opinions, and that's okay. How many believe that God says what he means and means what he says? Can I get a witness from anyone? Yeah, uh, he, and our only response to the things that he says and the things that we discover is to bow in acceptance to that truth. Don't fight the truth. Don't fight the truth when it comes slaps you, slaps you upside the head. Okay? And usually why would a truth slap you upside the head? Because you're so stuck in the trench of what you thought was truth that you're unwilling to see a new truth. Amen? So uh, that being said, um, let's talk about what's happening around us. What's happening today that tells us that Jesus is getting ready to return? Boy, if I opened that up for conversation, we would all have something to say about that, wouldn't we? Uh, it is possible, as I said, that maybe you've never thought of the things that I'm going to share with you as signs of the uh, imminent return of Jesus Christ. Let me, let me rephrase that, certain return of Jesus Christ. Imminency is actually another doctrine as it relates to the Lord could return right this instant. But imminency is actually not very biblical. I just kicked a holy cow, I know. And the reason for that is because there are things scripturally that have to take place before he can come. If there are things that stand in the way of his return, then his return can't be imminent. It, stuff has to happen first. So, I didn't want to get off in that doctrinal tangent, but whatever. I as well shake, stir the soup right off the bat. And so, uh, we've probably all heard over and over again, uh, many times through the years, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming soon. Uh, probably every one of us have heard somebody proclaim, we're in the end times. And if you've been in Pentecostals as long as I have, you've heard somebody say, we're at the end of the end times. You know, so we've all heard that. There's a problem with that because that repetition of heralding the warnings about the end times causes us to become insensitive to the message causes us to become insensitive to the probability of our Lord's return. So I want to challenge us today to wake up because Jesus is coming soon. Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, we learned last week that his last words recorded in the Bible are, Behold, I am coming quickly. We had a declaration last week. Y'all remember what it was? Put your hand over your heart, say this with me, say, Jesus, Jesus. is coming back for me. How many of y'all said that a few times this week? A couple of you? I encourage the rest of you to get on board, get on the train, come on, let's do it. Hallelujah. The whole Bible, from front to back, is quite frankly a foretelling of the Messiah. The Old Testament, the hub of the Old Testament was the foretelling of a coming Messiah. The whole hub and nucleus of the New Testament was the fact that the Messiah came. So everything about the Bible is about the prophecies of Jesus Christ. It really is. You can literally boil down the entire word to prophetic words about our Messiah, Jesus Christ. Daniel prophesied about his return. Zechariah prophesied about his return. In the New Testament, I don't know if you remember this, angels 
prophesied about his return. The apostles, of course, prophesied about his return, and Jesus himself had a whole slew of things to say about his return, about coming back. But our human tendency is to do what? To grow tired of that that delays. Hmm? How many of you watch a TV show and you just hate the whole show, but you stay right there on that channel? No, you're flipping right on through the next or scrolling because you can't even hang out for 30 seconds. On You go, that's pretty interesting, but i got to see what's next. And you scroll through to the next thing. We're bored with something when it delays. We, come, we become bored with something when it takes too long. And that's what's happened, for example, that's what happened to the ten virgins in Matthew chapter 25. We talked about them last week. They all started out waiting for the bridegroom, every single one of them. They all knew that he was going to return. They were all in love with him, and Scripture says that Jesus delayed his return. He delayed his return, and in fact, we find in the Scripture that they all slumbered and slept, every one of them. It's just that some were prepared with extra oil. They were prepared for the delay. Others, five, were not prepared for the delay. And in fact, when the bridegroom came, he showed up at the, at the least, uh, at the most unexpected moment is when Jesus showed up. Five were not ready. Five were, five were welcomed into the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And five were left behind. Left behind. And I believe that that's what I really talked to us about last week is being prepared for the coming of the Lord. We could, we could go over all kinds of exciting doctrinal points, but you know what? They all pale in comparison to truly being prepared as the bride of Christ. That is really where it's at. And if we haven't been cultivating a lifestyle of godliness, if we haven't been cultivating a lifestyle of holiness, there's a chance you'll miss out as well. That is, warrants a moment of silence, yeah. I shared with you that there were three different witnesses. You had the, the witness of the angels, the witness of the apostles, and the witness of Jesus Christ. I kind of want to go over those really quick. The angels, let's turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, the angels witnessed the return of Jesus Christ, and in that witness, we see an amazing harmony between the Old Testament prophet Zechariah and the witness of the angels in Acts chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 9 through 11. This is the story of when uh, Jesus ascended into heaven. And verse 9 says, and Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched. That's important for you to even think about what's going to happen at other points in the end times, maybe the rapture. While they watched, he was taking up, taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, angels, who said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will oh, come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. We uh, have actually had a misuse of that scripture that says that uh, we're all going to get raptured out of here in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And it's actually not what that scripture says. What it says is that we'll be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye. We'll be changed from mortal to immortal. We'll be changed from corruptible to incorruptible. But every rapture that's taken place in the Word of God was observed by people who saw them go. Interesting. That was just a little tangent I had to go to. Zechariah chapter 14, one, verse 1 and verse 6. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. In that day, and by the way, the day of the Lord is a phrase that we're going to spend some time on. That's a very important phrase in the study of end times. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Now to verse 6. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Guess what? That's where he was when he ascended. At the ascension, he was standing on the Mount of Olives, and his disciples watched him ascend, his feet leave the Mount of Olives. Zechariah says that when he comes back, his feet will 
touch down on the Mount of Olives. And if I know the way God works, it wouldn't surprise me a bit if it wasn't exact same GPS spot to the button. Now that's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing harmony between the Old and the New Testament. Of course, the apostles, they bore witness to the return of Jesus, and we all got to remember that they lived their life in an expectation that he was going to return while they were still alive. We should kind of live with that same expectation as well. Turn your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to look at a bunch of scriptures together uh, this evening. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 16 and 17. I'm going to go ahead and read verse 15 as well. Is that all right? For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So the Lord himself will touch down right there on the Mount of Olives. Same spot. Pretty powerful. And the apostles, they taught this very same thing throughout Scripture about the Lord's return. Jesus himself, himself he spoke uh, a lot about his return as well. He witnessed to it in the parables he spoke about it there. He, he talked about it in Revelation. And especially if you take a look at his last words in the book of Revelation chapter 22 in three different spots. Verse 7, he says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. And then in verse 12, he said, Behold, I'm coming quickly. And my reward is with me to give to everyone according to, the, to his work. And then finally, the third time, verse 20, Surely... I'm coming quickly. You think there's a message that Jesus was trying to get across in the last chapter of the book? Three times he said, hey, y'all, I'm coming back. Shortly, I'll be back. I'm coming back quickly. I like the part where he says, I'm coming back with my reward. There are rewards based on the works that we do here on the earth, and those rewards will be given to us when we go to heaven. It's a whole other teaching. All right, so I said that I had four signs that I wanted to share with you that um, may upset some of you. I understand that, but that happens with the study of end times. It happens, actually, when you decide to uh, be a preacher that's accountable to speaking the uh, unadulterated truth. You, you worry sometimes about who you might offend, and then the Holy Spirit slaps you upside the head and says, you, would you rather offend me or somebody? I said, somebody. I'd rather offend somebody. So he says, good choice, Rick. <laughs> sign number one. A sign of the coming of the Lord is the remo removal of moral absolutes in societal culture. What are the moral absolutes? Well, we know the moral absolutes to be the Ten Commandments. The removal. They've been removed from our schools They've been removed from public buildings. The removal of God's word from the culture of society, what it does is it breeds anarchy. It breeds rebellion. It, re it breeds chaos, which you need to understand that anarchy, rebellion, and chaos make room for the entry of the Antichrist to come figure it all out and give the answer to all the problems that society, society is facing. But one of the signs of the coming of the Lord is removing the moral absolutes. And let me help you with something. It was years ago when they were removed from buildings and removed from the schools. But today we are seeing the fact that there are hardly any moral absolutes in our society whatsoever. It's caught up with us. It's caught up with us. When you remove the moral constitution of God from culture, it makes way and you all are going to, you're going to relate to this, it makes way for lawlessness to propagate and breed and run rampant. Lawlessness. Daniel prophesies that before the Lord can return, that sin, lawlessness is also another word for sin, that sin will reach its tipping point. It will reach its apex. 
It talks about, we're going to go there, go to Daniel chapter 8, about sin running its full course. In other words, sin will have run so far in, 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 in society that society no longer has a filter by which to filter sin out because they no longer know the difference between right and between wrong. Daniel, did I say Daniel? Let's go to Daniel chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 23 through 25. And in the latter time, their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, there's, there's the line, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, in other words, when sin has run its full course, when the, the consciousness of wrong is gone. Hello, y'all. That's society today. It says, when transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but it won't be by his own power. It's talking about the Antichrist. His power will come from Satan himself. He will be the incarnation of Satan, the son of Satan. See, all Satan can do is mimic, copy, counterfeit what God has done. So God had a son incarnate who was empowered with the attributes of God, and Satan will have a son incarnate known as the Antichrist who will be empowered with Satan's powers. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And he shall destroy fearfully, and shall prosper and thrive, and he shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people." Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. Deceit, you see, is the one power that the enemy has to plant thoughts, ideas, and suggestions into your brain and my brain that go opposite of the Word of God to deceive you that it is in fact the Word of God, to deceive you, to twist the Scripture just enough to make you think that, oh man, that was God just spoke to me when it was the enemy all along deceiving you. And he will, the Antichrist will be empowered with every ounce of Satan's power of deception. Every ounce of it. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. That prince is capitalized. Rising up against the Lord, he shall be broken. I love this. Oh, this is a good one. Uh, this is really powerful. He shall be broken without human means. That means God's going to do it. <laughs> God's going to do it on our behalf. Amen. So the removal of the Ten Commandments is the removal, removal of God's moral absolutes. And when they are removed, sin ultimately, and we're, we're, we are, listen, I don't know how deep we are into it, but we are seeing it in our society right now. I don't care what position you have in culture, you can't help but look and see what's happening on the news and go, wait a minute, what is happening in our country? What's happening here? In the minds of people, they, it, it becomes confused. There's no... There's no right and wrong. There's just a gray area which, you know, people begin to call what's wrong right, and they begin to call what's right wrong. Isaiah chapter 50 verse 20 says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Listen, that's where we're at today. Much of what's happening in our society is also happening in the church realm by ordained ministers who are propagating the very sin that is running rampant in our country. They're saying, no, that was culturally wrong back in that day, but it's not culturally wrong today. It's right today, because after all, we have progressed and we have grown. I guess I got that a little too close. I just baptized that table <laughs> and my phone, but that's all right. The Passion Translation has a subheading before this particular text, and the subheading is, are you ready? And I looked in some of my other Bibles, I didn't see this, this subheading, the perversion of values. The perversion of values. Turn your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 
Genesis chapter 6, I'm going to read verse, verses 3 and then verses 5 through 8. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for his, he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120. Let me help you, that doesn't mean that he's put an age limit of 120. Because you can go into the Psalms and find out that a man's days are 70, and if he's strong, maybe 80. So you have to understand that that means something other than 120 years. Otherwise, everybody would be living to be 120 years old or so. goes on to say then in verse 5, Then the Lord saw that wickedness, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And look here. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. <sighs> Tell me that's not happening in the chaos of our country, in the politics of our country, in the landscape of our country. That every intent of the thoughts of the heart are evil continually. And the Lord was sorry. This, this bummed me out today. I mean, I've read this a, a thousand times, but I, I thought about it. I went, well, the state that our, our, our world is in, not just our nation, our world is in right now. I wonder if God is sorry that he created us. Because it's happened already before a couple of times. When evil and sin had run its full course to the point that only the thoughts of man were only evil continually. He was sorry that he had made man on earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said in verse 7, I will destroy man who I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping, excuse me, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I'm sorry that I made them. And I just thought, oh, God. Please, Lord. No. I almost wanted to stand up like Moses who, who said, no, don't, don't take it down on the people. Please, please don't, don't open up the earth and swallow them. You know? Forgive them, Lord. Wow. I, I want you to let that sink in. We are in a day and age where the thoughts of mankind are predominantly from the church life all the way to the complete heathen life. Nothing but evil intent continually. When we remove the Ten Commandments as moral absolutes in our, in our culture, we opened the door for the Antichrist to come in and give the answer which absolutely subsequently paved the return of Jesus Christ. What I'm doing tonight, last week it was about us being ready. Tonight I'm trying to throw gasoline on the fire of your awareness that he's coming back. This isn't just, I don't believe, the repetition of a preacher droning on about the Lord is coming back. We've got to have a fire in our hearts. These disciples had a fire in their hearts that before they died, Jesus was coming back again. And Jesus did go on to say that before this generation passes away. Now, we know that several generations passed away. You might call that a contradiction. No, I call it a, a, a philosophy that the Lord wanted every generation to have the idea and to live their lives as though, as though he was coming back before my generation ended. But we lost that. We lost that. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. Let no one deceive you by any means. For the day, everybody say the day, will not come unless the falling away come first and the man of sin is revealed the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That day won't come. The day of the Lord's return, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the falling away comes first. So sign number one is the removal of God's moral absolutes. Sign number two, the widespread acceptance of homosexuality is a sign of the Lord's return. Hear me please, beloved. I am not talking about the condemnation of people. I'm not spreading hate speech here because I have no hate against God's creation, his sons and daughters, his creation. What I am talking about is the behavior, the sinful 
behavior. The spread of homosexuality is a sure sign of the soon return of the Lord. How about Sodom and Gomorrah? Depravity had reached its apex, its limit in Sodom. Turn your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19. Yeah, I won't make it through this whole one tonight. I don't carry, I haven't got very far, so we'll see how interested you all are. Uh, Genesis chapter 19, verse 4 and 5, and then verse 24 and 25. In verse 4 and 5 of Genesis chapter 19, and now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. That's the house that Lot was in with the two angels that came to rescue him. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came with you tonight? Bring them out so that we may know them carnally. Y'all know what? That's just a nice way of putting something else, right? All of them came and said, where's the, where's, the, where's the new guys? We want them. We want to know them. Well, let's go on over to verse 24. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the city, and what grew on the ground. In this setting, we see specifically that the rise and spread and acceptance of homosexuality and that particular sexual depravity stood in total opposition to God's creation and how he had set up the moral standard for society. He created them male and female, not male and male, not female and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and they too shall become one, not he shall leave his father and mother and go be with another man. You see, Satan knew what he was doing right here by saying, I want to destroy the very fiber of God's creation. I want to destroy the very aspect of the most intimate human connection that takes place between a man and woman that God set up as the moral standard in life. And he says, I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to defile that, and I'm going to put man and man together. And here we see that it had come to an apex in Sodom and Gomorrah to the point that God Although I don't think it says he was sorry that he made man, but I got a feeling he probably was just like with Noah, and he's saying, I'm just going to destroy the whole bunch of them. Fact that sexual sin has become the norm. In fact, if you stand with a viewpoint of sexuality like we stand as a church, you're a bigot, you're a hater. And you're just wrong. But we're standing with the moral fiber of what God has set out as an absolute standard for our society. Society has changed. The norm is different now. You can see candy commercials that are sexual in their content to teaching grade schoolers how to have sex and also in their books and things teaching them that there are alternative lifestyles and in fact if you don't want to be a, a boy you can be a girl and teaching that in school hello y'all there's no context of sin in the minds of society today sin heaven forbid that sin is running its full course Sin is running its full course. Society is reaching its apex in deviant sin. Wow. Didn't make me feel like this when I wrote it, but it sounds different when you say it. Remember that last week was about you being ready. This week is about you having a fire. He's, he, he's about to come back. He's coming back. So, number one, the removal of God's moral standards. Number two, the increase in homosexuality. Sign number three, the rise of false teachers. This one's going to be hard for me because I, I, I have a whole list of false teachers in our land that I know without a shadow of a doubt are false teachers. 
And it wouldn't surprise me a bit if you don't fund some of their ministries. So I will follow the course of action that my pastor takes. When he speaks against false teachers, he never once mentions any of them by name so as to not sow discord. So I'm not going to mention them by name, but I am going to pray that the Holy Spirit convicts your heart about who you're listening to, who you're sowing into, because they are wolves in sheep's clothing. You might say, well, I sure wish you'd tell us. Well, Holy Spirit will have to tell you. I'll tell you the word. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. That should be right here, I think. Yeah, First Peter. There we go. Chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. Let's get over here to First Peter, chapter 2. That ain't correct. Oh, I know why. It's Second Peter. What, you've never made a typo? Quit judging. <laughs> Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who brought them who bought them, excuse me, and bring on themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words, and for a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. Now go with me to Second Timothy chapter four. I fought with the Lord today about mentioning names because there's a part of me that wants to just proclaim it so that you're guarded. Um, but again, I'm going to follow the leading of my pastor. I'm just going to tell you, you better be careful about who you're listening to, what voices you are letting direct your life, and you really better be careful about where you're sowing your money. Man, I've got to come a nervous heart right there. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. For the time will come when they, who is they? It's y'all. It's church folks. When they will not endure sound doctrine because they have itching ears. They will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure affliction, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I like how Pastor Barclay takes that phrase, they'll heap up to themselves. He said that means they pile them up. They got a whole pile of preachers that tickle their ear and say the thing that they want to hear. They don't want to hear from the person who slams them in the face and in the heart with truth. We're living in an age right now, folks, brothers and sisters, where people will not go to a church unless it's a feel-good experience with a feel-good gospel being preached by a feel-good preacher. They won't even attend a church unless that's what's being offered on the menu. They'll attend churches that'll tell them what makes them feel good and will bring them comfort in their, all their areas of their life. People don't want to hear a message about confession. They don't want to hear a message about repentance. Apparently, you do. You're here on a Wednesday night, but I'm helping you be prepared for the coming of the Lord and to have a fire in your heart that Jesus is coming back for me and you. Amen? People don't want to be challenged or confronted with their sin. They don't want to be. We're not living in a time where... Excuse me, we are living in a time when most people who call themselves Christians have no desire to really change their lifestyle much at all. 
They want to find a way to make Christianity fit their lifestyle, make the Word fit their lifestyle instead of the other way around. That's the society. From I'm talking about the church level here. I'm not talking about the heathen, y'all. I'm talking about so-called Christians. They don't want to hear that message. We're living in the day of me. It's all about me. It's the gospel of me. I must be happy and warm and fuzzy and cozy, and I want it to be entertaining, and I need to have lights and smoke and mirrors and rock star musicians and rock star high-profile preachers and Give me a big enough church where I can just kind of hide in anonymity amongst all the people. That would be really good. Especially give me those churches that have wine tasting contests and uh, hookah bars in the back of the room. People will follow after preachers that will tickle their ears with feel-good, me-centered messages. Again, I'm not mentioning any names. Jesus didn't go about preaching a self-centered feel-good gospel. That was not what our, our, our Lord didn't do that. He preached a gospel of repentance. He preached a gospel of die to self. He preached a gospel of seek first the kingdom of heaven. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the Savior that we're following. That's why most people are looking for a different Savior. That's why the propagated message right now is that there are many ways. Jesus is just one of them. All religions are one. Pope Francis has just done a, an edict not too long ago about, with Islam saying we serve the same God. Uh, ours isn't named Allah, but it's the same God. We're all one family. Let me help you with something. That is a, against the Word of God. It is heresy, and it is the beginning of the one world religious system. Unless we're willing to repent, unless we're willing to pick up our cross daily, deny ourselves and follow Him, unless we're willing to be confronted by the Holy Spirit, unless we're willing to yield to the Holy Spirit once we have that confrontation, and yes, unless we're willing to grow up in Him, we're not going to enter the kingdom of God, may I dare say, be left behind. Matthew chapter 7, verse 14 says, Narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few that find it. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. So all of you, probably not you, because you are the holy folks, the church, much of the church as a whole, is looking for a free ride to heaven. And what they are is on a downward slope to hell. People are flocking to churches where they're not being challenged with sound doctrine. They're being bottle-fed a gospel light. They're being spoon-fed a fluffy, superficial, pablum Christianity that's not going to stand up in these last days. Friends, that's why I'm adamant about what I'm teaching right now. This, this, this gospel light, this user-friendly stuff is not going to stand up in these last days. It's not going to stand up in these last days. There's a chance if the 50% rule is true. You know the 50% rule? There were 10 virgins. Five didn't make it. Are you all with me? If the 50% rule is that hard, fast, 50% of you are not going to make it. That's how you got to look at it. I plan on making sure that my profession of faith is secure. Amen? I'm going to live for the Lord. I don't care what I have to give up to do so. I'm going to die to self. I don't care who I offend. I don't care which people are mad at me, whoever wants to come get me for this or that. We're going to speak the truth here at Resurrection Life Church. And if our church dwindles down to 60 or 70 that's here tonight, well, heaven... For heaven's sakes, then that group will stand before the Lord and hear the words, Well done, thy good and faithful servant. Amen? Amen. Then I will have done my job as a pastor. How many of y'all give me five more minutes? I got one more point. I got one more point. 
Just one more point. So sign one was the removal of God's moral absolute. Sign two, the increase of homosexuality. Sign number three, the rise of false teachers. Here's sign number four. And then next week we start getting into some deeper stuff. Sign number four is churches and ministries that were once on fire have become cold, dead, religious institutions. Cemeteries. Yeah. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 5 and verse 7. You can turn your Bibles there if you want. I'm getting ready to bring it to a, a close. What I'm sharing with you are signs of the return of the Lord that are probably not on your regular list of signs of the return of the Lord. Maybe they were. I don't know. We like the fancier end time stuff. When are you going to talk about the rapture? Well, if we're lucky, we'll be talking about it on our way to heaven. Glory to God. No. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. But know this, that in the last days... Perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and and the... the, uh, uh, Apostle Paul writes to his spiritual son Timothy, says, and from such people turn away. Now verse 7, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's those people. They're always learning about things of God, but never able to come to the actual knowledge of the truth of God. Because they're in a feel-good environment. Make me happy environment. Let me just leave here and feel good about myself environment. No, I believe that the Word of God is a sharp, two-edged sword. And if you come in to hear the Word of God and don't get poked and stabbed and cut in some way, shape, or manner, you've gotten a watered-down message. Now, I don't hit the pulpit going, huh, I wonder if I got blade sharpened today. No! The Word will do its own work. So we're living in a time where much of the earth is covered by religious organizations that are cold and they are dead. Churches have become lovers of self. What is that? That's humanism. I looked these words up in the dictionary. Listen, these are, I did not add anything to these definitions. Humanism is the pursuit of self-fulfillment through natural means that often rejects the importance of following God. It's from the dictionary. Humanism is that which pursues me, self-centeredness, self-fulfillment, not through supernatural means, but through natural means that often rejects the importance of following God. Churches have become lovers of money. What's that? That's materialism. Materialism is, is an obsession with material things. I'm shocked that these were written in the dictionary. Uh, obsession with material things with a disinterest or rejection of spiritual things. Churches have become lovers of pleasure, which is hedonism or hedonism. And hedonism is the doctrine that pleasure and happiness is the highest good. Churches have become lovers of prestige rather than lovers of God. They've become lovers of numbers and programs and buildings rather than lovers of God. They look like the real thing based on their packaging, and it's pretty slick, but inside, this is the problem, they are devoid of the power of the Holy Spirit. They have no power. They hold on to a form of godliness, but have denied its power. The church in general has moved in step with society. Oh, yeah. It's moved in step with society. Church split. The United Methodist Church is, I don't know if the split has happened, 
but they were having a, a potential church split over the, uh, the, the conversation about uh, the LBGTQ, you know, and whether we're going to stand for that as godly and okay, or whether we're not going to stand for it, and it's going to be ungodly, and they've literally split down the middle. Just last year, it was a part of their general convention to have that debate. So the church, folks, is keeping in step with society. We're, we're supposed to come out from among them, y'all. We're supposed to be a peculiar people. We're supposed to be different. I didn't say weird, and I didn't say high and mighty. We're supposed to have life. Amen. In many ways, the societal norms of Noah's time are not unlike the times in which we live right now. The church has become more worldly-minded than heavenly-minded, and because of it, it's an empty shell posing as the church of the living God. And I'll tell you right now, it looks good, but it's devoid of power. And if there was ever a time, I'm getting ready to close, if there was ever a time for Satan to test God's church. That time is now. And in fact, that time started happening in February and March when COVID hit and they started closing down churches. We got some churches right now that are just barely meeting in parking lots. I'm talking about right in our city, barely meeting in parking lots. And if there's a threat of rain, they cancel church. I am not making this up. It's horrible. Right here. Forecast was rain, so we canceled today. If there was ever a time where the church is prone to apostasy, the time is now. And maybe that's a word that you've heard. Maybe it's not a word you know the total definition. I was once again, Joni, blown away by some of these literal definitions in the dictionary. What is apostasy? It is by definition a total desertion and departure from principles and beliefs. It is an abandonment of holiness. I added to it, it's the dereliction of pastors leading God's people in a way that's not pleasing to God and saying it is. Instead, they lead them in a way that's pleasing to self, and it should break our hearts, Sharon. It's the negligence of church leaders to lead, God pay, to lead God's people in the way that's right. Instead, they lead them in a way that seems right. And yet the Bible tells us in Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof is death. Y'all okay? I haven't preached myself happy. This breaks my heart. why I'm so serious about pastoring a church and doing it in a manner worthy of God. I'm not in a popularity contest. Matter of fact, there's only really one person on the planet that I hope to gain that person's respect and admiration. That's my beautiful bride down here. I could care less whether you like me or not. I care what my Father in Heaven thinks of me. Amen. In closing, hallelujah. We got to open our eyes. We have to be ready. And we have to open our eyes and get on fire about the fact that the return of the Lord is near. It is at hand. We can't play church anymore, y'all. We just cannot go through the motions anymore. It should cause us to want to live a life that's worthy of the life that Jesus Christ lived. Every morning that I pray, I say, Lord, let my life be worthy of the life that you gave for me. We need to wash our garments. Talked about that last week. We need to have clean hands, clean heart, pure minds. We've got to be sold out for Jesus Christ. There's no time for wavering, and there's certainly no time and no room for compromise. You could get left behind. Because Jesus is coming back soon. Would you stand to your feet with me? Whew.
Man, I don't know why my heart feels like there's a big knot in there right now. Because the state of affairs in our nation is sad enough. But to talk about it as a state of affairs in God's church is heartbreaking. It's nauseating. And it's terrifying. Oh, Lord, please don't let that be us. Put your hand on your heart. Say this with me. Say, Jesus is coming back for me. Give the Lord a praise offering. Well, I call you blessed. I pray that you have an amazing week. We'll see you on Sunday morning. Our brother Jonathan, you're leaving for vacation tomorrow. Yeah, he's going off on vacation. Call you blessed on your vacation time. Be refreshed. Enjoy family. <coughs> Enjoy the black flies up in the UP. It's going to be wonderful. <laughs> hey, y'all, I call you blessed. Keep your nose in the book, your knees bent to heaven, and your body's in the house of God. We'll see you Sunday.